0: I'm Janhavi Kassavi, and I'm the host of this Coalesce Produce miniseries. I love love, but recently I've realised we don't give a lot of weight to conversations about romantic love. So I've gone and interviewed three academics who study love to talk to me about why it's important and why we should be having more critical conversations about it. Today we'll be talking to Dr Nicola Overall about attachment theory, attachment insecurities and why we shouldn't let ourselves and our romantic relationships be defined by them. I'm not going to butcher Nicola's introduction so we'll go right ahead and let her tell us a bit more about herself. If you could tell me a bit about what your academic history has been, where you've been teaching and sort of what
1: your main focuses of research are. Kia ora, uh, thank you for inviting me to chat with you. I'm really happy to be here today. I am. Uh, I was brought up in a small rural town in Aotearoa, Te Kweri. I left home when I was very young, left school, uh, was a little what we might think of as a troubled teen. Um, I grew up with in a big family, we were very loud, we were very emotional. And I didn't really have an identity apart from my family. And so as I uh, tried to recover from uh, leaving school so early, I found myself wanting to help other people. And what really occurred to me was that most of the strife that young people having, including my uh, own, Uh, challenges was about relationships. It's about the family relationships that you have or don't have or that you have trouble with, the other kinds of relationships that you get into as a young person and then throughout adulthood that bring us the greatest joys and also um, the greatest heartache and so that led me to want to become a clinical psychologist. I went to university as an adult student to train in uh, clinical psychology and I fell in love with research basically. I started researching relationship processes and how that impacts our health and well-being and what makes a good relationship and why we're so bad at relationships Uh, and uh, so that led me to go into a research career instead of the uh, being a clinical psychologist like I had thought and now I'm a professor of social psychology um, at the University of Auckland here and uh, love what I do and love what I study.
0: Yay! That's really cool. It's, it's cool to understand people's like, personal motivations behind their career choices and particularly what they study in academia. I feel like it's, it, kind of, it says a lot about why someone is where they are. Um, so today we're going to be mainly focusing on talking about attachment theory um but to start off with I wanted to touch on quickly another sort of focus in your research um which I've seen you talk a lot about how relationships and romantic relationships impact well-being so can you kind
1: of explain how they benefit our well-being Sure. So, think about the things in your life that are the most important to you. If I got to, if I got you to list, what are the top three things that are most important in your life? relationships are going to be at the top or at least in there somewhere and mostly all of them will relate to relationships that'll be your close family your close friends your relationship partner if you have one or you want to have a relationship partner or um, you're getting over your heartache about losing your relationship partner Uh, and that's because as humans we're you know so we're social beings. We're driven to live together um, and, and, and what we hope is happy, cooperative relationships and so people who are socially connected and who have healthy thriving relationships they are the happiest people they're the ones that are protected from um, ill beings Uh, they're the ones who live longer who are able to recover from illness faster And those people who aren't socially connected, who are isolated, um, unfortunately they die earlier, they don't recover from serious disease, uh, cardiovascular disease, cancer for example, and they're much more susceptible to depression, suicide. Any kind of psychological disorder you can list. Relationships are basically the foundation of our life and our living. And a lot of what we, a lot of our psychology, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we behave, is all driven to maintain these kinds of social relationships. And so romantic relationships often become the, that kind of central relationship in your life. So Social relationships are important because the support that we get from others helps us achieve our goals, helps us get over the challenges of of our lives. And when we're in a romantic relationship, I'm talking about somebody that we're in a serious dating, we might be living, cohabiting, we might um, have children with that person. They're the ones that become central to our lives, central to... Um, the support that we get and and that kind of source of happiness and well-being. Of course, that also means they're the person that can give us the greatest pain, the one that we are more likely to have conflict with and the conflict that we experience on a daily basis um, uh, uh, and, and that kind of heartache that comes from loss of relationships, um, either through dissolution or um, death, that... Uh, incredibly impacts our health and well-being. So much to unpack there. Um, I think my biggest question
0: from what you just said is most people would understand how romantic relationships would impact or benefit your mental and spiritual well-being. Could you briefly explain how they impact physical well-being like you said people um who don't necessarily have close relationships can be more susceptible to illness and can have like a tougher time recovering how
1: does that actually work so there are like various psychological and biological mechanisms that explain that kind of link but if you think about what our relationships do for us in our lives that will help you understand why it's so important in terms of physical disease. Life is a series of well, this is going to sound very negative, but it's a series <laughs> of overcoming challenges, right? And the the stress and the 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 wear and tear that our bodies get through life is um, a, a, is greater when we don't have the resources to be able to meet those challenges. And relationships are one core resource that helps us meet those challenges in a way that keeps our immune functioning uh, the way we regulate our stress for example all our close relationships help us to do that effectively and therefore reduce the impact of stress on our physical being when we're sick uh, what gets us over I mean obviously it's you, you can't just love yourself through cancer or <laughs> cardiovascular disease or like yeah. that's not what I'm suggesting. but uh, you know the, the degree to which we adhere to uh, medicine protocols, the degree to which that we are able to have the strength to really go through what we need to in order to survive. Uh, is best done when we have those people loving us supporting us through that yeah (sighs) that's so nice to
0: hear because I guess a part of the reason that I wanted to do this this season overall was to drive home the idea that romantic relationships and love these things that are present in almost all of our lives they have weight and they they impact us in very real and tangible ways so it's Although although a lot of the things that you're talking about are sort of like the, the negative ramifications of not having those, it does drive home the idea that these things matter and that it's it's worth our time to kind of understand how they impact us. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: I completely agree. It's always surprising how little people pay attention to the science of relationships, and and particularly because everybody knows how important it is mm. for their life. And when you think about your own life and who you are, you think about the relationships that you developed within. We know that children who have loving, healthy relationships with their family are able to grow up and thrive and have healthy, loving relationships and happy lives. Mm. Those children who are not lucky enough to have that kind of stable secure family environment or lose um the parents or have any other kind of family disruption are those that struggle you know as a young person and through adulthood in terms of learning how to maintain ha- healthy relationships uh we not we, like we we can see it we experience the the major impact our relationships have on the rest of our life and yeah. so i am excited that you're wanting to get some of the science <laughs> out into the conversation
0: i'm glad you touched on childhood because it's definitely something that i want to ask when we talk about attachment theory So I guess to start us off, what is attachment theory?
1: Attachment theory is a... I'm going to say framework for understanding how humans manage and regulate their relationships. And it really is founded on the way humans develop in their close relationships with their caregivers. Bowlby, who's the father of modern attachment theory... Uh, theorised that humans are born with an attachment system and like we come into life with an attachment system that orients children in ways that make them bond with their caregiver and that is necessary for survival. Children are not able to just uh, come into the world and live on their own, they need care for a very long time. And uh, so Bowlby theorized that there is an innate attachment system that organizes our responses to ensure that we stay close to our caregivers, that when we're stressed, we um, seek comfort from our caregivers, and that we use our caregivers as a secure base to explore the world. Now, I think what we'll talk about mostly is how that applies to relationships in adulthood. But generally, the system operates throughout our life to orient us towards those people that we can rely on to give us the kind of support and positive well-being effects that we've been talking about so far.
0: So when you were talking about what Bowlby theorizes about how children come into the world with that Framework of attachment is. Did he also? I'm
1: assuming it's a he. It is a he. It's, it's usually a he. It was uh, a he. <laughs> it was a he. So this isn't, um, you know, like the 1960s. Yeah. This is when attachment theory was born. Okay.
0: And so did he also theorize that? Because I guess what um, a lot of the people listening maybe most familiar with when people talk about attachment theory is attachment styles so did he also theorize that when children are born they come with a specific attachment
1: style and that different people have different ways of attachment or are those things developed through childhood that's a really great question so Bowlby's theory is really about as infants There are this collection of behaviours that try to facilitate a bond between the infant and the caregiver. When the infant is distressed, the infant will cry, the caregiver will respond and address the infant's needs. The degree to which that pattern across the child and the caregiver develops determines different types of attachment orientations. So the theory was really about how different types of caregiver parent dynamics are going to create different beliefs and expectations about the world and different ways in which the attachment system will operate so let me give you an example okay when we think about the most ideal way that parents are going to interact with their children we think about a child needing something to be fed to be protected to you know to be cuddled and that parents will be responsive mm, and they'll provide we, yeah we say responsive we mean that the that the parent will be responsive to the child's needs what the child needs They'll be able to soothe the distressed infant and in doing so, allow the infant to learn how to, or allow the child to learn how to regulate their own emotions, right? Mm. To know that their caregiver will be there for them. And so they develop uh, a secure attachment orientation. And that is, that secure attachment is based on Experience the experiences in which the caregiver can be trusted to be responsive. But all our relationship partners are not always responsive. (laughs) And we're not always responsive attachment partners for others. So different types of patterns of uh, infant-caregiver interactions create different types of attachment insecurity and that continues throughout uh, our relationships with others as we grow throughout adulthood.
0: So when you talk about different relationships creating different attachment insecurities, are you saying that within different relationships we have, we have different attachment styles for sort of like fit for purpose for those relationships, or do people inherently have an attachment style that kind of carries with them throughout all
1: their relationships? That's a great question. So, Bowlby's theory typically is understood as. Infants that get the care they need, develop a secure orientation, and then they're secure in all their relationships throughout life. Yeah. And then infants that don't get their needs met, develop attachment and security, and then they're insecure throughout their whole life. Yeah. That's actually not consistent with Bowlby's theory. Um, Although it is true that people, obviously, our core experiences in childhood really provide a map for us to understand what we can expect from others and how we should relate to others. But Bowlby's theory was really about an adaptive attachment system. He was really arguing for a system that orients humans to behave in ways that can get their attachment needs met. And so that means that the system is flexible to different types of environments, and that's where attachment insecurity comes from. So let's take what you probably know people will know about attachment anxiety. Sometimes it's called anxious attachment, sometimes it's called preoccupied attachment. People who develop attachment anxiety have histories in which the people that they've really cared about have been responsive sometimes but then sometimes haven't so they've had this experience of inconsistency sometimes for example their caregiver might have been very loving and responsive when they really needed that person that that parent or later on that partner but sometimes when they really needed support or care or they were distressed their attachment figure responded with anger or irritation or neglect or withdrawal and this kind of inconsistency creates anxiety Mm. because you don't know what you're going to get you don't know what you're going to get the inconsistency creates I'm not sure at any given moment whether this person I love is going to love me in return and is going to be responsive to my needs. And what happens then is what's called hyperactivation of the attachment system. So I was talking to you about how the attachment system orients you toward other people in times of need. If, you, if an infant is hungry or distressed or ill, the infant cries that to a signal to get care. As adults, we don't cry, but we do all (laughs) kinds of behaviors that signal that we need care. We seek support. When people uh, have a hyperactivated attachment system, they're doing that more because yeah. they're not sure whether people are really, really there. Even when they know others love and care for them, they're not really sure whether the the, the person is gonna be responsive when they really need them. And so when they do get distressed, people higher in attachment anxiety tend to amplify that distress. They they seek support, they're seeking reassurance and closeness all the time. And it's really hard to settle people who are high in attachment anxiety because they can never really come back. to this point where they feel secure that the person is really there because in those behaviors I guess
0: when you're anxious that comes across as like you being needy or you you know yeah being really insecure in a relationship where the other person doesn't really know how to soothe or placate you
1: yes Mm. and so it's very difficult to soothe people who are high in attachment anxiety because there because there is just this underlying fear we, that at the, that 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 they can't quite relax and let go. They have to hold on to those close to them because, at some point, they might go away. Yeah. Now, people think about attachment insecurity as this negative, dysfunctional orientation that's irritating and unsatisfying (laughs) and it does have negative consequences for sure which I'm sure we'll talk about but Bulby's point was if you are in an environment in which you have inconsistent caregiving the best way to get care is to make sure you've got it So his his whole theory is about an adaptive system that adapts to the environment and creates different ways of behaving to get your needs met. For an anxious person, if you are actually in a relationship and where the person may or may not give you support, then you really need to directly get support and make sure you get it, right? Yeah. And this comes back to your other question, which was, well, do you have this orientation your whole life? Yeah. Well, the system is an adapting one. And that means that it adapts to the environment that you're in. And so people don't have just one attachment style or orientation that they A exhibit. are kind of doomed with. <laughs> yeah, that they're doomed with or that they exhibit across all their relationships. Um And that's because not all relationships are the same and people's experiences change. And you can see this quite clearly in your own experiences when you know people have a very secure relationship with their parents, but are very romantically, anxiously attached with romantic partners, right? And that makes sense because when you first start developing relationships in a different domain, there are there are good reasons why you should be, be insecure, you, right. Actually. There are good reasons to figure it like to figure out whether you can really trust and be secure. Like everybody has a tendency towards attachment and security in some circumstances that warrant it. Until they learn, they're in an environment in which they can be secure. But just the same, as people can have. Distressing relationships, family relationships in their childhood, and have more secure, healthy relationships as they grow up mm. through peers, through romantic partners, through other kinds of, through other family members that lead them to a greater baseline of yeah. attachment security. So you can think about all of our experiences creating this general overall attachment style. Don't like the word because, <laughs> because a style implies a category, that you're yeah. that kind of person, but that's actually not how it works. And that we also vary in our attachment security versus insecurity, depending on the type of relationship that we're talking about and the the experiences that we've recently had. So attachment security does change across the lifespan, depending on your experiences. I feel like if
0: there's one thing to take
1: away from the episode, it's that. Over the past couple of years, definitely, I've
0: noticed on social media, attachment styles and, like, quizzes and stuff like that becoming very trendy. Um, and, yeah, then you do, once you kind of figure out what one you are, I feel like people do experience that sense of doom of, like, okay, well, I'm this type of person, and so I'm always going to be this type of person. So it's nice to hear that they adapt and change. So we've talked about being securely attached. We've talked about being having, like, an anxious um Attachment insecurity. What are the
1: other types of attachment insecurity? So, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the opportunity to go back a little bit and yep. answer your question by first talking about styles and categories, and yep. then talking about another attachment or dimension that's important. Okay. The reason why people, you know, like the term attachment styles or attachment categories is because they do want to figure out the person that they are. We all want to know who we are. (laughs) Or it provides us with a framework for understanding why we do what we do. And so if we have a tendency to be anxiously attached in our romantic relationships, for example, then it gives us some kind of comfort to know that we can label that as, oh, I've got an anxious attachment style or I'm anxiously attached and this is how I am. Mm. Well, first of all, it can change. And if you can identify those tendencies, because they're not categories, like we all vary in these tendencies, then you can do something about it. Yeah. Right? It's not it's not a, a category that can't change. And also we'll probably get around to talking about how our, our relationships we can have a partnership with those that we're in relationships with to help us alleviate those insecurities. Instead of categories, we really should be thinking about two attachment dimensions that are really important. So in the scientific literature, we don't measure attachment styles or categories. That's not what we measure. We measure the degree to which people um, vary along the dimension of anxiety. So how much people tend to be um, anxiously attached in their yeah. relationship. So, looking at it on a spectrum as yes. opposed to
0: are you or aren't you? It's yes. like how much do how you How much show are this? you?
1: And yep. then what predicts what varies and how much you are, right? Uh, and the other dimension that we assess is called attachment avoidance. Mm. And attachment avoidance is different than attachment anxiety. And that instead of having a hyperactivated attachment system, the attachment system is deactivated. So I said, imagine being a person in which sometimes your caregivers and the people that you loved were there for you and sometimes they weren't. And yeah. that inconsistency created anxiety and hyperactivity. Attachment avoidance is theorized to arise from experiences in which people have consistently been unresponsive. So rather than sometimes getting love and sometimes not, people who are high in attachment avoidance feel or perceive that others have never been there. Yeah. Or, or mostly are mostly unneglectful and not there. When I'm distressed, when I need people, that's when they're not there. I can't count on them. They're going to respond with anger or they're going to just withdraw and neglect yeah, and leave me. Yeah, be dismissive. And be dismissive. And so going back to thinking about the attachment system as an adaptive one, what's the adaptive response when other people are neglectful and you know you can't get your needs met I mean, you don't ask for them then. you don't like ask you, for them
0: there's that like level of avoidance there's that level of detachment where you're like i guess you'd either shut down your needs because you think that it's not important to have them met or you kind of just like like extreme self-soothing where you're like i am the only person who can support me because
1: i can't count on anyone And that's exactly right. So Bowlby was particularly interested in um, attachment avoidance because his theory arose from trying to understand how children who'd been in severe neglect had such problematic uh, regulation systems. So for example, this is the language at the time, were like Mm. in juvenile detentions, right? And it was really linked to having extremely poor relationships with parents or being neglected as children, being abused as children. And so he really theorized that attachment avoidance is a functional response when your environment is almost certainly going to let you down. And if that is the case, then you should become self-sufficient, just like you said. You shouldn't count on other people. You shouldn't trust other people because they're going to hurt you in the end. And therefore, you should suppress your attachment needs, that need for connection, and you should just rely on yourself. And so this is what we think of as the category of attachment avoidance or dismissive avoidance, sometimes it's called, Um, this character Uh, This characterization of a person who doesn't want anybody, doesn't need anybody, is only going to count on themselves. And when people want to have relationships with them or need something from them, they become angry and they push um, others away. In adult relationships, for example, you're not just... Counting your, the person that you're having a relationship with isn't just your attachment figure. You're also the attachment figure for that person, right? Yeah, it goes both so ways. It goes both ways. And so for people who are high in attachment avoidance, and I say higher in avoidance, right? The more avoidant you are, the more likely you are To believe that you can't trust and rely on other people that means you hold your emotions close to your chest you're more likely to suppress your emotions you don't disclose as much you uh, don't you don't want to be as intimate or close as other people often want to be um, with you and you don't seek support and you try to be self-reliant and when something goes wrong you withdraw and you push away and you distance. And so it's very hard to have a relationship with somebody who's like not there. But the other thing um, about people who are high in attachment avoidance is when their partner is upset, when their partner needs support, when their partner needs care, people who are high in attachment avoidance are more likely to see that as kind of intentionally manipulative and trying to ask more for what what they should be expected to provide and that same kind of withdrawal and distancing and anger is likely to arise so it's
0: not just suppressing the need to have I guess your needs met but also not being able to provide or gauge why other people would need things because you've learned to suppress
1: that yes that's right yes and, you know, and again, there's good reasons why people would be like that if they are environments in which they really shouldn't trust other people to be there for them. And it is more adaptive then to be self-sufficient.
0: One thing I found interesting in one of your papers that I was reading was when you talked about people that are, not not that they are, but they're high in um, attachment anxiety yeah um that they and you looked at their perceptions of their past relationships and what that paper found was that people who were higher in attachment anxiety um tended to recall their past relationships more accurately but they also remembered them more negatively than they actually were yes because and if I'm recalling this correctly, it was because they were always on high alert and looking for threats that potentially might not have been there. So as a whole, they remembered the relationship quite clearly, but that but those memories were sort of focused on the negative more than the positive.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that attachment insecurity does is it really hooks you in to try to find cues in the environment that signal what you fear the most for people who are high in attachment anxiety, they're on the lookout for any signs that they'll be rejected or that their relationship is not going well. Because even when they're happy and they love their partner or their family member or whoever, whatever relationship we're talking about, even in those positive conditions, they don't really feel settled. They never, their attachment system isn't really turned off because they can't just come and believe fully that the other person will always be there. And so they're really vigilant for cues that something bad is gonna happen to their relationship. And that means that they're more likely to detect when things go wrong. They're more likely to detect that their partner isn't that satisfied today. They're more likely to detect that their partner's in a bad mood. They're more likely to detect that their partner is, you know, like finds somebody else attractive. And um, and so you find that they are accurate in tracking these different conditions of the relationship. But what that also means is that when they do see these real relationship events that are important, they also exaggerate the meaning and significance of those events. So a partner's bad mood becomes more negative and more about the relationship than it really is. Yeah. Um, a partner's natural notice of an somebody that's attractive becomes the partner wants to be unfaithful. Yeah, you know these are I'm exaggerating, but in general, what's what's happening is anxious people are seeing the world in line with the beliefs and expectations they already have, mm. and that means that they have biases. It's like kind of like confirmation bias, where you see what you want to see. Absolutely, so both anxiety and avoidance are associated with these biased perceptions and that then fuels back in terms of their insecurity. So for people who are high-attachment anxiety, they're more likely to perceive their partner as dissatisfied. When they are having conflict with their partner, they're more likely to see their partner's negative emotions. They're more likely to think that that conflict means that their relationship is doomed. That means they behave in these kind of negative ways. They ex- They They behave in disproportionate ways. And this damages their relationships and relationship satisfaction, which fuels their insecurities. Yeah. cyclical. (laughs) Yeah. And people who are high in attachment avoidance, they they are on the lookout for other things. They're on the lookout that their partner is being intentionally manipulative or that their partner is asking them for too much um, or that their partner's you know, upset with them because they're oriented towards signs that they really can't trust that their partner is really there or is is the kind of partner they want or want to be. And so this tends to increase the degree to which they distance and withdraw which makes their partner want something more from them or express their negative emotions you know which can create these dynamics which damage relationship satisfaction and of course confirm for avoidant people or people high in attachment Mm. avoidance that they really can't trust their partners yeah um just the same when they're experiencing something really stressful and they don't seek support that means their partner doesn't know what's wrong or how to provide them support, and then that confirms the belief in the first place that 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 um, people high in avoidance can't rely on their loved ones to provide care and support.
0: So when you put it like that, it feels like you're doomed. I know we talked about not being doomed, but it kind of feels. Yeah, if you, I understand that it's it's very possible to, depending on how your relationships pan out, it's possible to
1: break out of those cycles um, but that those things do feed into each other yes you can break out of those cycles but those cycles are Mm self-perpetuating and in the moments of every day you know everyday relationship life in which we're perceiving others responses or our own the qualities of our relationships as being a little bit more negative than they are yeah um,
0: I have some quick rapid fire yes or no questions okay. for you
1: um, I'm not very good at yes or no but I'll, I'll try <laughs> I'll try to be I'll try
0: I feel like that's been the pattern with a lot of people it's like you no. I have to give nuance yeah I have to explain <laughs> um try as much as you can to give me a yes or a no these are your 10 questions okay number one Nicola do you believe in love at first sight
1: mm, no
0: is it okay to date your friend's partner
1: today your friend's ex-partner <laughs> thank you for the clarification
0: yes valentine's day no
1: blind dates yes i don't know what i'm saying no or yes too but i <laughs> yeah <laughs> like are you are you do you think they're a good idea are you keen on them in like a theoretical way i think relationships are important and we're all looking for good relationships and we need to find them. Yeah. And so if there are numerous ways that you might go and do that. Um, I think the best relationships are those that are developed out of friendship networks. And the mm, data supports that. Yeah. But our lives are very different now. And um, the way people meet are very different now. And so, so why not go on a blind date? <laughs> yeah. Marriage proposals in public sure like I mean if it was like in public or private Mm. I would say private yeah um but you know getting married's a great thing too mostly for people Mm. and so sure going to bed angry at your partner oh tough one yes can I elaborate yeah you can (laughs) So there is that old adage not to go to bed with your partner when you're angry. And it's, you know, it's good advice to, to not let things settle. So uh, sit, I mean. Yeah. I study a lot about conflict and communication. And I'm also a very direct person. And so I'm all for being direct about what we're upset about and to try to resolve problems and if you don't express those and you keep just holding your tongue and suppressing your emotions and trying to forgive your partner we know that's actually really bad for relationships Mm. it's really bad for you and your health and well-being and it's really bad for relationships for lots of reasons Um, But mostly because a problem can't be solved if people don't know there's a problem there to be solved, right? You're not processing anything. Yeah, nothing's, there's nowhere to move forward. Uh, But we can choose when we discuss our feelings and our problems, and we can choose to do that in a time when... It's more conducive to actually sustaining our relationship and resolving our problems. And sometimes that means that you should just be quiet and leave it for later.
0: Yeah. I feel you. I, I'm personally I'm like a I'm like a yes, like do it. But I, I understand that it can be quite contentious whether or not you should go and be angry. Uh similar to blind dates, but double dates. Um
1: sure i mean i think that our relationships are better when they're supported by a community Mm. and so if you've got so double dates are a way of doing that
0: yeah can you be in love with more than one person at once yes breaking up with someone not in person no (laughs) um and lastly can you ever move out of the friend zone
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think so. I think so. I think it's harder when... Now I'm showing my age and I'm going (laughs) to sound like an old lady. I think it's harder when you're younger and you know, like, you want the passion and everything. But, you know, friendship is the best basis for a good, strong, healthy relationship. And so I think yes, for sure. Big tick from me on yes. Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay, so I wanted to do a little bit of myth-busting, which I feel like we have already done, um, but I know that there's a lot of information out there on the World Wide Web about attachment styles, insecurities, attachment theory, um, and I understand that a lot of it is very contradictory. Um, isn't like There isn't heaps of consistency out there, and I also feel like there's a lot of, like, Faux relationship therapists on TikTok that kind of like spout relationship advice but don't like really have any credentials to back anything up. I did three different quizzes before this interview. I was like, I want to le- let me find out what my attachment style is. What was it? Okay, it's gonna. say I'm not trying to flex. Okay, it was it was securely attached. Oh yeah, I but I will. You know <laughs> what? I'm gonna shout out my parents. They did. I had a very loving supportive childhood so i'm gonna attribute it largely to that so i got the same result but all of the quizzes on these different websites had like wildly different information in terms of what they're telling me about attachment styles and what they mean and um even like what they're called so this is a list of attachment style names i came across there was anxious preoccupied anxious ambivalent anxious avoidant Dismissive, avoidant, fearful, avoidant, secure, dependent, codependent, disorganized.
1: Why do you think there are so many different names out there? So those names all originate from the original developmental literature, and you can actually categorize. You can use those to think about the dimension. So, attachment anxiety and attachment avoidance underlie all of those. Okay. So when someone when you say someone is high in attachment anxiety you're saying that they're anxious ambivalent anxious resistant was what it, it was was the term in the developmental for like children okay when you say dismissive avoidance you're talking about somebody who's high in attachment avoidance yeah when you're talking about fearful avoidance you're talking about people that are both high in attachment anxiety and high in attachment avoidance. It's sec- the double whammy. Yeah, the double <laughs> whammy. And secure is basically low. So the dimensions that I've been talking about can be put into four quadrant space. Yeah. But it's still unhelpful. It's unhelpful in the sense that they're independent dimensions. We know this. There, we. And it, I don't want to tell you how we know. It's boring. It's <laughs> about measurement and theory. Blah blah blah. But it's like they're independent dimensions, and um, people vary. They vary. They they go up and they go down, and they vary. And it's about how how much you are of something. And the degree to which that leads to the kinds of outcomes that we've been talking about that are associated. They're not, they're not, it's not a one-one relationship. So, oh, you're an anxious person. That means that you're always going to think that your partner doesn't love you. That's just not how humans work.
0: Yeah. I have a question about generations. And I, I, I don't know if this is something that can, like, be quantified. But when you think about attachment insecurities that people have and the studies that you've done and the research you've done, are there any kind of differences between generations? Like, do you notice that, say, young people today tend to have a certain type of
1: attachment that's maybe different to older generations? Oh, that's a great question, but I don't have an answer for you. There is some critique of attachment theory that it's a very kind of Western construct Mm. and that the way we think of attachment and security in this dysfunctional way that I don't think. But the way that it's characterized really doesn't reflect different types of environments across the world in which peoples who are more avoidant or more anxious might be quite highly valued in that way because that fits the environmental context. Yeah, and I guess also people have different conceptions of
0: what... I mean, what intimacy looks like, what closeness looks like, and how you display those
1: things. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And so, a lot of this work has come from a very Western tradition. Um, and although uh, anxiety, attachment anxiety, and avoidance does reflect behaviour all across the world, and the cross-cultural work that, that we've done, um, that the field has done. Uh, there are differences in levels and degrees across gender and age and you know but in terms of generations nobody's really looked at that Um, but it's a good question I think I think it's particularly relevant now after thinking about young people developing in a very isolated world through COVID. Mm. Um, We had a teenage daughter at, sc- at school who basically had three years of school online yeah. right like and so you think about the kinds of relationships that they were or were not having not relationships in person yeah but relationships online that varied and at the way that shapes the expectations and beliefs and the degree to which that prepares you for what is required to regulate intimacy yeah. in relationships is a really interesting question that I have no answers for. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know
0: how, how chronically online you are, but um, is there information about attachment theory that you've seen online where you've been like, this is terrible, like this is really
1: inaccurate or unhelpful that you would like to potentially dispel? Okay, so I'm not chronically online. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which is good. And so I do think, I do understand why people use categories and tests and this easy information about a description of a person that you can identify with and therefore understand um, who you are. Or why you might do things or think things the way you do but the reason why it's not helpful is that it it just leads to an understanding without any way forward of what to do about that yeah they're kind of like we've diagnosed the problem even if they haven't properly diagnosed it
0: not giving you any solutions yes yeah
1: and I think one thing to remember is this, that attachment insecurities operate in relationships. They're not just about one person. Yeah. And the way we respond in relationships are not just about ourselves. And so a lot of the time, what's regulating our attachment and security is our partners. You think about a friend you've got or a partner you've got. It's easy to think about a friend, right? Um, Think about a friend who is high in attachment anxiety. Bet you you'll be able to come up with an exemplar and how they are to you. And then how you might respond to them. Mm. You make sure they're included more. You uh, keep them up to date more. You know that they might respond negatively if you don't invite them to a particular event. So you make sure to, or you, you know, we do all of these, but we we, we are um, all psychologists really walking around managing our relationships knowing who our relationship partners are and responding to that we know when our partner is attachment avoidance well we know when they have tendencies to be high in attachment avoidance when they need support but they close off or when you're upset with them and they close off and so what do we do in those situations we change the way we behave to keep our avoidant partner in the interaction And so we've done a lot of research about the ways that couples or or, um, partners kind of respond to regulate those insecurities in ways that alleviate anxious concerns about abandonment and help avoidant people be more dependent in their relationships and that both enhances their relationship quality and also their security. Um, And then that flows on to their children so how much more they're able to be responsive to their children so we were talking about how
0: these these quizzes don't necessarily show you a way forward um but if we do talk about finding a way forward if if someone has done the introspective work to kind of figure out like what kinds of relationship partners they are and what kinds of attachment securities they might have what does someone then do with that information? Or if someone's listening to this episode and they're kind of reflecting on themselves,
1: where to from here? What do we do? That's a great question that I will try to provide <laughs> some insight to. I don't have a very clear answer of like a five-step program. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thinking about the themes that have come through our conversation, one of them I think would be to remember that insecurity is not a dysfunction right yeah that it emerges because of the experiences we've had our temperament of course you know personality as well as what we think and believe the world is like what other people are like and that knowledge in our expectations and why we might think that way is powerful knowledge is powerful we can then consider the reasonableness of those beliefs and expectations and the reasonableness of our behavior Mm. the second thing is is if we can be compassionate about what behaviors those types of insecurities generate then maybe we'll be more easy able to change them for example let's say people who are high in attachment anxiety, when they experience conflict or their their partner is not as happy with them as they want them to be, and they engage in all of these kind of really high emotional behaviors and yeah. that can even lead to being you know at the extreme that can lead to aggressive ways of trying to hold on to your partner or manipulative ways or trying to guilt your partner all of these behaviors are related to attachment anxiety um we, when relationships are in trouble right uh, or people are really hurt but if we can think about well what are the underlying insecurities and concerns about that that can really change the way you think about that behavior and hopefully motivate you to try to find other more adaptive less harmful behaviors to get those needs met Mm. so even if you can't i guess
0: completely cold turkey it you can you can find less harmful things like you can substitute behaviors
1: yeah yeah right so instead of indirectly trying to skip expressions of love from your partner which is something that people who are high in attachment anxiety do a lot they Mm. like need reassurance but their fear of rejection means that they don't directly state it they're more indirect about it and then they might test their partner's commitment right they you you could think well what's a way that fits with me that i could express that need to my partner or my friend or my parent or whoever it is yeah
0: finding like healthier ways to ask for what you want instead of manipulating people to show you right yeah and if
1: you're high in attachment avoidance and you know you close off and get angry at others when you really need them or when they need you and you don't want to be like that you can remember when your partner really needed you or your friend or your sister and they really needed you but it was too much for you and so instead of you know expressing the distress or wanting to feel the distress you basically cut not run right yeah. let's say you're if you see that about yourself and it hurts your relationships and you don't want to do that, but that's what you feel like in the moment, then you can also go, okay, well, this is why. And so what can I do about that? How can I, what situation could I put myself in where that emotional vulnerability isn't so scary or distressing?
0: Yeah. I have... I have three wholesome concluding questions. Oh, good. Um, for you, this has been this has been so very educational. Um, my first question for you, and I guess you can answer this in your professional academic sense, or you can answer it as Nicola, the, the person. Okay. Um, but what is love?
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, Nicola, the person. Mm. Okay. I'm going to return to some themes that we've been talking about. And I'm going to say love is being vulnerable enough to trust another person and be there for them. And if you
0: conceptualized a relationship that is really great, so a relationship that is happy, healthy, what... What are like three words that you would use to describe those kinds of romantic
1: relationships? Friends. Yep. (laughs) Being there not just when the person needs it, but also when things are really going great for that other person. Yeah. And remembering that your partner and you are just human and have bad feelings and fights are normal and that you can move through them yeah. and, and just, yeah, stay invested in one another, even in the ugliness. Yeah. Um, and lastly,
0: if the person listening to or watching this episode um, has some form of partner, significant other, um, thinking about what we've talked about in this episode, what's one thing that they could do for their relationship um, that's like a nice
1: thing for their partner? What could they? What's like one takeaway that they could implement? Back to basics. Remember how important your relationships are, and remember to attend to them. Mm. Our lives are really busy, and we get really our our work consumes us. Our children occupy our time. Our social media is, (laughs) can be chronic. Um, and so, um, we can often forget about those people that are really close in our lives that deserve attention. So attend to your relationships.
0: That's really beautiful. Um, those are all of the questions I have for you. Thank you so much for making the time. I have... I've told everyone this but I'm like half the reason I'm here is from a very self-centered need to just like want to learn more about love and relationships so I've learned heaps I'm sure everyone listening's has learned heaps as well so thank you so much for your time Nicola you're very welcome you can look us up on Instagram TikTok Facebook YouTube wherever it is that you do scroll your life away and if you want to see more of me, you can head to Instagram at goddessbynight.